But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading can be found on page 1007. 1007, taken from Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, 
dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told him about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the re their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Pat and Sue, thank you very much for those readings uh, for us this morning. When we come to a passage like that that we've just read in Mark 5, I'm sure it raises loads of questions in our minds. Uh, what are demons? What does it mean to be demon-possessed? And what's the scope of demonic activity uh, and their influence in the world today? Well, we're going to attempt to work through some of those questions this morning, but before we do, let's ask for God's help as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, please shape and direct our thinking through your word this morning. Blow us away by the authority of the Lord Jesus over the kingdom of evil. Increase our trust in your salvation plan, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our sermon series this morning, thinking about encounters with Jesus from Mark's gospel. And we encounter this morning authority. I'd be really grateful if you would have Mark chapter 5 open before you as we dig into this remarkable encounter of authority of a healing of a demon-possessed man. And the conclusion that Mark would have us this, uh, draw this morning, if we're on the green as the golfer and as we kind of tee off, Mark would want us to know that evil is no match for the power of Jesus. Well, we move from a wild sea in chapter 4 to a wild man in chapter 5. Jesus and his disciples have just crossed the Sea of Galilee. They've gone somewhere to the east side of the lake, the region of the Gerasenes. Now, why is that an important detail that Mark tells us? Well, this is the first time in Jesus' earthly ministry that he's crossed over into Gentile territory. We're no longer in Israel. We're no longer amongst God's people. Jesus has gone to those on the outside. So the question on our minds is, is Jesus still in control despite his geographical location. Well, my first title heading for us this morning is An Evil Confrontation. We get that from verses 1 to 7. Just picture the scene with me. Uh, the boat hits the shore. Jesus has told us already in Mark chapter 1 his mandate, why has come. The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus has told us in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, that's why he's come. He's come so that he can preach about the good news. And as soon as Jesus' feet seemingly touch the land, then we're met with the forces of evil. The forces of darkness rear up against Jesus. Look at verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. From verse 3 to 5, we're given eerie details about this man. He wanders amongst the graveyard outside the town, the tombs. 
Verse 4, there are broken shackles on his wrists and ankles. Not even metal chains can restrain this man. He's so powerful, he just tears them off. No one, nothing is strong enough to subdue this man. Verse 4, verse 5, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he'd cry out and cut himself with stones. It's a terrifying image of a man oppressed by evil spirits. This is not merely a maniac. He's utterly and seriously tormented. And when the man uh, uh, with the evil spirit catches the sight of Jesus and the disciples, he kind of breaks into full stride. He starts running at them. He's in attack mode. And I just wonder what would be going through the minds of the disciples at this moment as they see this wild man stampeding straight towards them. I think one by one, the eye watches on their wrists of the disciples uh, would start beeping to elevate them that their heart rate uh, has got excessive. They need to calm down. I'm not quite sure that uh, a couple of drops of rescue remedy is going to help with this situation. Sweaty palms, that nervous feeling in their stomachs. I think if I was one of the disciples, I would just line up behind Jesus. You can just imagine this kind of Jesus in front and then this line of 12 lined up behind him. And as they brace for impact, to their surprise, their heads pop round to see what's happened. There's this man with the demons on his knees in front of Jesus. Verse 6 and 7. They know who is stood before them. And the spokesperson for the demons uses this man's vocal cords. Verse 7. Shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. It's a scary image, isn't it? And do you know what's even more goofy? There's people walking around today denying the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the demons. There's no liberal theology in hell. Even the demons believe and shudder, James tells us in chapter 2. Well, a modern theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem defines demons as evil angels who sinned against God and are now continually working evil in the world. Well, we've not got time to go into that definition in more detail this morning, but these evil angels, they know their torturer. They know the son of the Most High God. I think in 21st century Britain, we've got little room for the idea of the supernatural, let alone the idea of demons. Often scoffed at, often ridiculed. Oh, you're not one of those Christians, are you? You believe in angels and demons and Satan and hell? You can't really believe all that stuff, can you? Well, the gospel writers did, and Jesus taught about it, so we should. Well, I'm not sure if you've seen that classic masterpiece, the 1995 film, The Usual Suspects. Anyone seen it? It's a great movie. Um, Kevin Spacey plays a character called Verbal. And Verbal's being interviewed by a police detective And he's concocting this wild story about a character called Kaiser Soze, who's been doing terrible things. And he comes out with the most incredible line in this film. Verbal says to this police detective, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. C.S. Lewis, the author of The Chronicles of Narnia, Uh, And the theologian said, and I quote, there are two equal and opposite errors in which we can fall when talking about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Lewis says, two equal and opposite dangers 
don't fall into either camp. Now, this isn't the first time we've encountered evil spirits in Mark. When Jesus first bursts onto the scene, flick back a couple of pages to Mark chapter 1 with me. Jesus is baptized. Uh, the Spirit rests on him, uh, Mark 1 verse 12. And the Spirit sends Jesus out into the desert. And he's in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And uh, he was with the wild animals and the angels attend him. When Jesus bursts on the scene, he does battle with the devil and he's victorious unlike Adam. And then down in verse 21 to 27, Jesus then on the Sabbath goes into the synagogue in Capernaum and begins to preach. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And as he's working through this talk, this, this uh, evil spirit pipes up and Jesus silences him at his word. Verse 27, the people are all so amazed, they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. Jesus even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Here's the big thing to take away with you this morning. No matter how scary the evil, no matter how powerful the evil and the enemy may seem, it's no match for the Lord Jesus. Evil is no match for the power of Jesus. Come back to Mark 5 with me. What is demon possession? Well, physically this man's not weak, is he? He's violently out of control. Do we see that in verse 4? Mentally this guy's a wreck. He's crying out, night and day. He's not in his right mind. Socially, he's a self-chosen outcast and loner who roams in the realm of the dead amongst the tombs in the graveyard. He's a man at war with God. He's a man at war with other people. And he's at war with himself, cutting himself up with stones. Well, there's lots of people around us, aren't there, in our communities who struggle with health problems and mental health problems. Some people self-harm, some people don't self-harm. Now I think we've got to be very careful here not to jump to conclusions. Now just because someone exhibits one or two or a few of these characteristics that are mentioned here in Mark 5, then that person's necessarily demon-possessed. We can't jump to that conclusion. However, it's not to say that some people don't suffer from demonic attack and demonic influence in their lives, particularly if they've opened the door to the occult uh, and uh, to witchcraft uh, and have used hallucinogenic drugs. That's a surefire way to open oneself up to demonic powers. Well, look at this radical transformation with me. Uh, we're back, at the man's on his knees before Jesus, verse 8 to 17, before the one in ultimate authority, the son of the most high God, and at Jesus' word, the demons are cast out of the man. Not before Jesus asks a question in verse 9. What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we're many. He begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Well, the man's reply indicates the depth of his misery. He's under the control of not just one, but many demons. A legion of Roman soldiers was 6,000 men. And uh, that's not to say that this guy had 6,000 demons in him, but it's kind of signifying that there's an army inside this man uh, occupying him. These demons, though, are like a dog on a lead before Jesus. Jesus is in complete control. Be reassured of that this morning. They submit to Jesus. 
Well, why Jesus allows what happens next to happen, I just don't know. Look at verse 11. A herd of pigs were feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out, went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Notice who's in control. Jesus has the power and the authority. He gave permission. The spirits come out of the man, and they went into the pigs on the hillside. They rushed down to their death. Those looking after the pigs in verse 14 go and tell everyone. The town hears about it. They hear about this commotion that's taking place. And what they find is absolutely staggering. Verse 15, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been demon-possessed, who'd been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. At the very least, we can say that a man's life and sanity is worth more than many, many pigs. The swine herdsmen clearly witnessed the event, and they wanted the pig owners and all the people in the town to know who was to blame and who wasn't to blame. And these guys have got their hands in the air. Gov, it wasn't me. It was Jesus. Jesus did this. It wasn't us. But look at this man, verse 15. He's no longer out of control. He's not screaming. He's not cutting himself. He's sat and dressed and in his right mind. There is a radical, a glorious transformation when this man comes into contact with Jesus. Now, I think the story takes a surprising turn at this point. Uh, a miracle's taken place. All right, it's been a costly one for the swine farmers. There's going to be some sadness over their pigs. I'm not sure whether they'd named them kind of Daisy and whoever, you know, these, uh, these, these, these pigs have died. But where's the celebration? Where's the joy? Where's the congratulations to the man? Where's the kind of high tend to Jesus? Where's the invitation for Jesus and his disciples to go down into the town and have a bacon sandwich or a hot dog? You know, there's no celebration, is there? Where's the gratitude? Where's the repenting and believing? It's a strange twist. There's none of that, verse 17. They beg Jesus to leave. The sooner the better. Get back in your boat and go. Why? Why do they do that? Notice that at the end of verse 15. They were afraid. These people were scared. It's too costly to have Jesus around. I quite like my life as it is. I don't want Jesus to change things where I live. Don't disturb my life, thank you very much, Jesus. And I think Mark is saying to us, look, don't be surprised by that response. Miracles, no matter how impressive, actually they don't attract people to Jesus. Often we see the opposite happen. And they don't save people either. And for some people, it just hardens their heart to who Jesus is even more. The brick wall comes up and they say, do you know what, I just don't want this in my life. This is just too much to cope with. Um, I don't want that, thank you very much. I wonder if there is also some fear of the unknown going on. They're in unfamiliar territory. So for the person here this morning, feeling a bit fearful, perhaps anxious, talking about the supernatural, thinking about evil, please be reassured the place to run to is not away from Jesus. We're to run to him because he's the one who's in complete control of this situation and over evil spirits. You see, Satan and God, they're not like two superpowers locked in this cosmic battle for all eternity. Satan is a created being. He's like a dog on a lead before God. He has limited power.
power. And the Bible tells us that he's been defeated by Jesus. So we can trust him. We can trust him with our lives. We can trust him when we're feeling scared and afraid. I don't know if this illustration is helpful for you, but um, apparently when a building's been laced with dynamite and they're going to do a controlled implosion of this building, there's a moment just after the plunger's gone down. They probably don't use plungers now, do they? It's probably electric. But there's a moment when the plunger goes down that the explosion happens and the kind of bricks are poofed out, but the building's still standing. There's that brief moment where the building's still upright and it's sure to crumble. And it's a little bit like that now. Satan's still powerful, but the plunger's gone down. The building is definitely going to fall. We're in that moment. His collapse is imminent. So elsewhere, Peter says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. Well, thirdly and finally, uh, what happens next is there is a gospel-hearted ministry and missionary who steps forward. Here's the second surprise, I think. The entire community have just slammed the door in Jesus' face. Yet Jesus, in his kindness, talks to Legion and gives him this commission, tells him to go out and preach. Look at verse 19 with me. Uh, Jesus said to him, Go home to your family and tell how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people, all the people were amazed. A gospel-hearted missionary with a gospel-hearted ministry, one who can speak from personal experience of Jesus and his lordship, his power and his mercy. If we were to ask Legion, Legion, what does gospel-hearted ministry look like? He'd say it's not a private thing. It's not something that you keep to yourself. It's about telling. And it begins at home. And it begins with us teaching our families. And we remind one another every single day of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, what he's done for this family, what God has done. I wonder, is that happening behind your front door? Is gospel-hearted ministry happening behind your front door. Well, it doesn't stop there. The man's filled with gratitude, isn't he? And he goes out, soon the entire town had heard, and then he goes out and tells in all the Decapolis, the ten cities, hear about Jesus, the one who has mercy, even on the most vile and evil people, Jesus can have mercy. And the people are amazed. Clearly, this guy was an effective speaker, so much so that when Jesus returns in Mark chapter 7, um, the, the people of the town bring out a deaf and a mute man, for Jesus to touch him, place his hand on him, and to heal him. Well, we've seen an evil confrontation, a radical transformation, a gospel-hearted ministry, and so as we bring the plane into land now, what about you and I? As we think about reaching out in this year of mission, miracles and signs, yeah, they're helpful, they're important, but actually, the most important thing is people seeing transformed lives like yours and mine authentically speaking about what Jesus has done for us how he's had mercy on us and that's what is going to amaze people as we show them who Jesus is as we teach about Jesus from his words and encourage people to come in and sit under the word of God so they can be amazed as well well lots more to say but I won't let's pray
Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Heavenly Father, thank you that evil is no match for the power of the Lord Jesus. Please help each one of us to be self-controlled and alert and grateful for your loving mercy this day and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Adam, thank you very much indeed. Bless you. We stand to proclaim our faith in that same Lord Jesus Christ. Satan had horrible, horrible, 